Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we continue to study Romans. I just pray, Lord, that we would take this truth and apply it daily in our life, that our life would reflect in our own way your holiness, that we'd express the joy of our redemption, that people might see Christ in us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been my habit as we've been progressing through Romans to give you a very broad outline before I begin my message. And that broad outline consists of this. Chapters 1 through 11 is the gospel of Jesus Christ, how one becomes saved, why someone needs to be saved. In 12 and 13 in what we've studied so far, has been Paul addressing the church in how Christians should conduct themselves. And if you remember from last week, we were in 13, 8 through 10, and that particular topic was that we should be a loving people. Christians should be a loving people. Not only for those that are in Christianity, but also as we interact with the world, we should be known as people of love. And if you look at verse 10 of Romans 13, where we left off last week, it says, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And we talked about last week, if you take the Ten Commandments and you take the second tablet that deals with how we interact with people, if you obey that second half of the Ten Commandments, you are doing your neighbor no harm. You are expressing the character of God. And I gave this John Stott quote last week, and I think it's worth repeating. Love and law need each other. Love needs law for its direction, while law needs love for its inspiration. And so when we think about that quote and we look at the last part of verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law, it makes sense. Because God wants His people to be holy. And when we live a holy life, we live a loving life to our neighbor's in our family and friends and strangers, all everyone we interact with. And it reminds me of 1 Peter 1, verse 13. I'm quoting this in the King James because if you grew up on the King James Version, 
It is a verse that's familiar to you in the King James. It says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. The Christian should be a loving person, and that means that they also should be a holy person. And this leads us to our focal passage this morning, which can be found in Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the 11th through 14th verses of the 13th chapter. And Paul wrote this, And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision For the flesh to fulfill its lust. Now let's first, as we begin these verses, think about the audience that Paul was writing. And this is important because he had one audience in mind. And that is an audience of Christians. It's to the church at Rome. Why do I know that? Because at the beginning of the book of Romans in chapter one in verse seven, that's what he said. He said, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is written to a Christian audience. It's not written to a non-Christian audience. This is written to a Christian audience. And then the next thing that I want to bring up before we begin the study of these verses is to look at one word and have an accurate definition of that word. And that word is salvation found in verse 11. Let's look at verse 11. He goes, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Well, if the letter is written to Christians, then what does Paul mean by the word salvation? He says, for now our salvation is nearer. Our salvation is nearer, but he's writing to Christians. And what he's referring to is is the completion of, of our salvation. Because our salvation isn't complete until we get to heaven. And when we get to heaven, 
we are in our glorified state and our salvation is complete. And that's why he says, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. You can see something along those lines in the first chapter of Ephesians. In verse 13, Ephesians 1.13, it reads, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now let's stop right there. When you accept the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit abides in us, doesn't he? He dwells with us. He is there, and Paul is saying here in Ephesians 1, that he has sealed us, and our salvation is guaranteed. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? But then look at the next phrase there in Ephesians 1.14. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. Well, who's the purchased possession? It's me. It's you. It's whoever has given their life to Jesus Christ. So he says in Ephesians 1, he said that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, our salvation, our salvation is evident when we stand before God. Our salvation is evident. Now the Bible says that there are people that will claim Christianity, but they're not Christians. And you can recall those words of Jesus where he said there will be Many, he doesn't say a few, there will be many in that day who say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus tells them, depart, I never knew you. And so there are people here on this earth that profess Christ, but they're not Christians. And we can talk about wheat and tares and all of those things. In other words, there's people who will claim Christianity that when they get appear before God, they're not Christians. But for believers, our salvation is evident to everyone when we stand before Him in our glorified state, not out of our works of righteousness, not out of our merit, not out of our strife, but we will stand before Him in His grace and the power of His blood, and we will be redeemed and we will be glorified as we stand before the Lord. So... We have a clear idea of who Paul was writing to. We have a clear idea of what he means by salvation. It's the final aspect of our salvation. So now let's go back and let's look at 10 through 12 in more detail. And the reason why I bring 10 up is because it's tied together in verses 11 through 12. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And then look at what Paul writes in verse 11. And do this, and do this, will do what? He's telling us to love. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, 
For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. So he's telling us in the same verse that to live a holy life, to live a righteous life, is to live a loving life. They are combined together. The love and living a holy life based upon the law and truth of the Lord. Well, why is he telling us to do this in verse 11? He says that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. In other words, Christ is closer. He's closer. And because he's close, he tells us, wake up. Wake up. Get out of your sleep. Now, is this a physical sleep that he's referring to? No. It's a spiritual sleep. It's a spiritual sleep. Well, who's Paul addressing here? He's addressing the apathetic Christian. He's addressing the apathetic Christian. And it reminds me of the lukewarm church found in Revelation 3. Now, before I begin, and I'll have comments on this afterwards, but the lukewarm church in Revelation 3 is not a saved church. It's not a church of Christians. And I don't have this in my verses, but at the end... You have that famous verse that's used in evangelism, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I remember when I was a kid at the church that we went to in Odessa, that they had this picture of Jesus Christ standing at the door, right there at the front of the church. And people use that as, a, as one for evangelism. But that's taken out of context. This is the apostate church. Christ is standing at the door of the church because there's no believer inside. And when you look at Revelations 3, verse 14, it reads, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things say the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, why do I bring up the apostate church when I'm talking about the apathetic Christian? Because I will submit to you that apathy breeds apostasy. Apathy breeds the apostate church. In our example here in Revelation 3, you didn't have a group of people sitting around and go, Hey, let's go start an apostate church. It doesn't happen that way. The church starts out with apathy. And it progresses to 
apostasy. And what's one of the signs of apathy? It is an acceptance of immorality. And this is poignant in our focal passage back in Romans 13. If you look at Romans 13, 12 through 14, Paul says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife, in envy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. The apathetic Christian and the apathetic church are willing to accept an evil and immoral lifestyle. And we've seen that here in America. We've seen it over the last number of decades. And it just didn't happen all at once. We don't just stand up one day and go, let's allow transgendered people to be ministers in our church. It doesn't happen that way. Let me do a little timeline for you to tell you how it did happen. First of all, the church starts weaking at immorality among its members in the form of fornication and adultery. We wink at that. We accept that. We don't want to, quote, hurt any feelings, even though we have a clear biblical direction on how we should discipline our members. And the church long ago stopped with church discipline. And then it went from that to the acceptance of women in the ministry, even though there is clear biblical direction that women are not allowed to fill the pulpit. Period. It's not allowed. I didn't make the rule. Get mad at God. It's not allowed. And then we went from women to then we started winking on whether pastors that had been married before fill the pulpit. Not allowed. Period. No excuse. Can't happen. If I got a divorce, guess what? My job here is done. Period. Doesn't work. I'm out. The church has started winking at that. And then after that, all of a sudden churches start tiptoeing in in our more liberal denominations and we have homosexuals in the congregation. And then we go from homosexuals in the congregation till we go to homosexuals in the pulpit. And then after we go from homosexuals in the pulpit, now we find ourselves where anybody can be in the pulpit. There are no rules and we disregard the entire New Testament and its design for the church in which God told us, this is what my church should look like. These are the rules. See, the apathetic church becomes the apostate church because people want to use quote-unquote the gospel as their excuse to sin. Peter and Paul both dealt with this. 1 Peter 2, verse 15. 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorant to foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. Liberty as a cloak for vice. And that's what's going on in the apostate church. People are using and misconstruing the grace of God for their liberty to live a life of sin and immorality. That was 1 Peter. Let's look at Paul's words in Galatians 5.13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. And the apathetic Christian will twist the definition of Christian liberty to fit his or her lifestyle. And that's where we're at. That is, unfortunately, the majority of the modern church as it stands today is a wink at sin and a rapid slide to the apostate church. However, I would imagine that if you got a registered letter, you know, registered letters are always serious, aren't they? You get a registered or a certified letter, it's like, what's this about? Well, I imagine if you got a registered letter from Jesus Christ saying that he would be here in one month on such and such date, that you would perhaps, and I'm talking about Christianity worldwide over, there would be some attempt to change one's lifestyle, which leads to Paul's warning there in Romans 13, 12, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. The night is far spent. What does that mean? It means that the time of evil, the time of evil is drawing to a close. And as you look around, I was went in to get donuts this morning for church and saw someone I knew there and He said, hey, could you sit down here at the table and talk to me for a bit? And we were sitting there talking and he said, I don't know about you, but I think that we are 30 or 40 years from the return of Christ. And you're hearing that more and more. That it is so bad. Things are so bad. Things are so different than what the majority of our congregation, the world in which we grew up in. They're so different. That people are saying, Christ has to return. He has to return. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. And I don't know the day. But my friend, I know that he's coming. And he's one day closer than he was yesterday. And you are going to stand before Christ in one of two ways. The first way is is that he's coming back. Right? Right? And that may be tomorrow. It could be a year from now. It could be 50 years from now. We don't know. We don't know the day. But there is another day that I also have certainty. I have certainty in the first day. But there's another day that I will appear before the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is when my days on earth are done. When I'm done. 
And when you look at Job 14.5, referring to man, it says, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. This is what the chapter is describing God, referring to his relations with mankind. Since his days are determined. You and I have a determined number of days. Thank God we don't know what those are. You know, I'd hate to sit there and look and say, well, I got three months and five days left. I'm glad we don't know that. But there's one thing that we do all know is that we're mortals. And there is a day. And since I don't know the days that I have left, and since I don't know the return of Christ, when that day is, when Christ will return, I do know that He said He's coming as a thief in the night. What should we do? Well, let's look at our focal passage again. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and in envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Let me point out some phrases that I think are important. Cast off and put on. Walk properly, not in strife. Put on. This is activity, isn't it? Is this apathy? No, it's the opposite of apathy. This is activity. It reminds me of Colossians 3, 8 through 10, when Paul wrote, But now you yourselves are to put off all these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Put off and put on. In other words, that's activity, isn't it? We're to pursue holiness. We're to pursue righteousness. We're to put off the sin. We're to put on Righteousness. This is a Christian who is active in their faith. And that's a question that we should all ask ourselves. When Paul wrote, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. We should all ask ourselves, are we active in our faith? Are we pursuing An active relationship with God. Are we comfortable in our present life? Are we comfortable with the idea that we might be standing before Jesus Christ tomorrow? And I would beg of you, if that answer is no, if you're not comfortable, then you need to do something about it. I remember when I got diagnosed with cancer and I struggled with ministry for years. For years. And at first we didn't know how serious it was. And there was one thing as I had struggled with ministry in 
junior high, high school, college, young adult. And when I got that word, I had cancer. And I had two small children and a young wife. And after I thought through those things, through those earthly things, the next thing in my mind was, I knew what my call was, and I did not want to stand before a holy and righteous God without living the call to what he's called me to do. It was a wake-up, because I had my focus on things other than Christ. Yes, I was a Christian. Yes, we went to church. But if I have to be honest, I was pursuing all of those things that were worldly. That was top on my list. And with that wake-up call, I realized I needed to reorient my life. That's what got me here. And as I celebrate 25 years, it was the absolute best thing that ever happened to me. Don't want to go through it again. But it was the best thing that ever happened. And so many times as we think about put off and put on, people in their hearts say, well, I really don't want to give that up. You know, you got your favorite sins. You don't really want to give that up. But let me say this. Whatever you give up, God is going to give you so much more. The day is at hand. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we just thank you for your word and your truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would live our life with expectation of your return. That we would orient our life in such a way that we would be satisfied with the way we are living if you come back tomorrow. I pray, Lord, that people might know us as one who lives out their Christianity. That that would be how we are defined, that we are known by. I pray, Lord, that if there's someone listening that has never accepted you, never turned their life over to you, that they'd ask for forgiveness of sins, And ask Christ in their heart to begin life anew. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, millcreekchurch.org.